All right, so Palm Sunday, and today we have a special guest with us who's going to be preaching um, the word for us. Uh, okay, so he goes by the name of Esso, and um, you might have heard of him. He's a, you know, award-winning Christian hip-hop artist, um, but that's not what I want to tell you about him. I want to tell you um, many years ago, we were both in London. He was a little lad um, who, who, who started rapping, and I owned like a record label thing, and I was trying to do some rap thing myself, but I wasn't as good, so I just thought I'll just be behind this, do some record label thing. And he was a young lad doing his rap, um, going around London. He loved Jesus, and so he wanted to use his gifts as a musician and as a rapper, um, as a wordsmith, to really just lift up the name of Jesus. And so that's what he started to do, um, and he got really good. Um, he became successful, and then when I moved to America, he kind of followed me. Um, <laughs> That's what it seems like. Uh, he, he followed me here, and um, it's been, I've just known him for so many years, so proud of what God has done in and through him. He's made a huge impact in so many people's lives with his music. Um, he lives in San Antonio, Texas. Oh, yeah, we've got some people from, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. San Antonio, Texas, he's part of a local church in leadership there, um, and God has been using him in so many ways. And so um, he might tell you a bit about himself, but without further ado, I've spoke, I've talked enough. I'm just going to introduce you to Esso, everyone. Esso, what's up, bruv? I don't know. How you guys doing today? Good. I'm trying to see if my is my mic on. I'm a rapper person, so gonna make sure the mic is all right. Mic is on. There you go. You guys feeling good? Yeah. Um, the only thing that Obed Obed said I followed him to America. I don't I don't know how true that is. You know, I did. I do remember sleeping on his floor though. So that is there is an accuracy there. So I appreciate those nights on the floor and the wing stops. Um, but yeah, it is a, uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be here serving you guys. My name is S.O. Um, I have been debating how I was going to start today, but I think the best way to do it is to play one of Obed's old raps. No. <laughs> Let's cue the music down. Uh, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but like all, all week, I've been, also why I've been trying to find, I'm trying, I'm trying to remember his, his lyrics, man. I've been trying to remember... Like Obed's raps, you know, he used to, you know, he's downplaying. He wasn't that great, but still, <laughs> he, you know, he was good enough to, you know, to begin and then start and do the record label. We had a whole AFG Nexus. He would come to my church in London, all for God Nexus. He had a whole spill before he was a pastor. A Nexus is a nucleus group. Every church service, he would say this at every youth group event. That was the spill that he was given, man. So it is, a, it is an honor to serve. And I, like I, you know, I just saw him just now, and I was like, hey, bro, I'm proud of you, man. Because um, a lot of our path, yes, has been symmetrical in the sense of like our immigration stories, like all of that stuff. We can relate to each other on all 
levels. And so to see where he's at, to see where you guys are at, my wife and I, we watch some Sundays off the church. We try to screw screw back home and like watch you guys and we're cheering for you, we're rooting for you. Um, and yeah, man, we want to see you guys succeed and glorify Christ in all that you do. So I'm a rapper, so you know, I expect a little call and response, a little active, active vibes. You know, a little, little bit of hey, hey, you know what I'm saying? So um, I know that we stand here to, to read the word. It is Palm Sunday, so we are in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 to 11, so we can stand for the reading of God's word. Then I will pray. And then we can get into what the Lord has to say to us. I'm reading from the CSB. It says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her fowl. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was written and spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey in its fall and then they laid their clothes on them and they sat on them. And he sat on them, sorry, a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! As we sang earlier to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in uproar. May San Diego be in uproar for the glory of Christ. Saying, who is this? The crowds were saying this, they, and they said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are able to gather here freely with no restrictions. And we're able to talk about Jesus and reflect on his entry into Jerusalem. Be with each and every person here. Be with me as I Deliver your word and just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts this morning. That we wouldn't just take this that we've read time and time again, but that we would reflect on what it means anew for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ah, man, like I said, Palm Sunday, you guys, you know, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know what this is about. But today we want to look at it by talking about that question in verse 10, who is this? Over and over again, as we read the gospel accounts, we see people being uncertain about the identity of Jesus. From his disciples to Herod to the religious leaders, the question, who is this, continuously comes up. Christ gets so famous that Herod asks to ask, who is this I hear such things about? The disciples... Although they interact with him, see all he's doing, hear all he's saying, still ask, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? Before his crucifixion, John tells us that they don't even understand the triumphant entry. They don't get it. It's after Christ gets crucified that they understand. 
Jesus' true identity and mission eludes them. Even the religious leaders interrogate him. They say, who is this man that speaks such blasphemies? From the beginning to the end of his ministry, these leaders question Jesus, and rather than allow his words and actions to be the answer, they choose a different route. They call him the devil, a blasphemer, a drunkard, a glutton, a friend of sinners, so on and so forth. And in Matthew 21, verse 10, we see even the crowd are saying, who is this? Not only are the crowd saying this, Jesus' friends, the people that he grew up with, say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Ain't this, ain't this homeboy from down the street? It's James, his brother Joe. This is brother Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Isn't his sisters, aren't they all with us? Essentially, they're asking, whose man's is this? People, since the beginning of Jesus' entrance into the scene, have asked, who is this? And the questions, and sorry, the answers are time and time again inaccurate. See, we know that who you say someone is may not in fact be who they actually are. The same can be said for the time we live in also. Even with all of our advancements, with Instagram, with Twitter, with Google, people are still asking, who is this? Who is this? And the answers still vary. Christ is still the most misrepresented, misquoted, misinterpreted, and misunderstood person in history. For some, especially in America now, the answer is that he is a tool for political gain. Being used by political parties, both on the left and the right, to have their points made. I don't have to elaborate on that. You know what I'm talking about. To others, he is a means to personal gain. A genie of sorts who can give everything your heart desires. You just rub the little... (laughs) Out pops the Jesus genie. What you want? According to the state of theology.com in a survey taken in 2020, 52% of American adults say that Jesus was merely a great teacher who lived and nothing more. So even in these times, the answers are incorrect, drastic, and they rarely give a full picture. Now you may be asking, what does that have to do with Palm Sunday? It's a fair question. It has everything to do with Palm Sunday. Because on Palm Sunday, we see who Jesus truly is. The question, who is this, is answered emphatically. We don't have to look elsewhere to answer that question. We just have to look at Matthew 21, verse 1 to 11. So this morning, I want to look at this passage and explore this question and answer it by looking at the three things, the work of Christ, the character of Christ, and the purpose of Christ. If you're a note taker, you should be up there. I love it. I love it. It works for me. The work of Christ, the character of Christ, and the purpose of Christ. First, let's look at point one, the work of Christ. Now, verse one of three may feel a bit random, but for Jesus, it wasn't. Remember, since Matthew 16, he'd been planning this trip 
to Jerusalem. He'd been telling his disciples that, hey, guys, I have to go to Jerusalem for a specific purpose. So nothing here is by chance. There is no coincidence in what happened before in the preceding chapters, what happens during, and what will happen after. So the first thing then is that the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, teaches us that with Jesus, everything is working by sovereign design. Let's read verse 1 to 3. It says, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her fold fowl. You know how you pronounce it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them and, they, and he will send them at once. I can imagine it now as the disciples listened to their rabbi's request and went to do as he said. The conversation might have gone a little something like this. Like, why on earth are we going to get a donkey breath? Like, why, why, why are we doing it? We've walked all this time. Think about it. There's, there's never a moment in, in Jesus' ministry where he doesn't walk. This is the only time that we see him not walking. We're two miles away from, I can see Jerusalem. It's right there. We're two miles away from it. Like, what are we doing? It's odd. It's strange. Then they get to the place and people actually confront them. Mark tells us that people actually ask them, what are you doing? What are you doing? The Lord needs, sorry? Then they actually have to give the response. The Lord needs them. Mark eleven six says, they answered just as Jesus has said. And so they let them go. So what can we glean from this? What do you do with someone who can know where to go, when to go, tell you how to respond if something happens, so on and so forth? The, the honest response would be to say that this is someone with perfect sovereign knowledge. Verse 1 to 3, it's really Christ saying, I know what is going on. I know what is about to happen. I'm orchestrating all of it. There's a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled, so nothing is surprising to me. The gospel writers make that very, very clear that Christ knows what will happen to himself, the animals, the people who are to be met, the words to be said, the disciples' postures. He knows everything. Here is someone with perfect sovereign knowledge of what is happening with them, but it doesn't just stop with him. Any general reading of the scriptures will show you that Jesus has sovereign knowledge, not just only about himself, but about other people. Let me give you one example. In John chapter 1, verse 47, before meeting Nathaniel, Jesus tells him, here, Truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel rightfully asked, how do you know me? He says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Verse 49, Rabbi Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Verse 50, Jesus responded to him, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will, future tense, 
see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus knows. And Nathaniel rightfully worships. Nathaniel rightfully drops everything. And he rightfully follows and he trusts him. And that should be our response. When we meet the Jesus of the Bible, the sovereign one, the one with perfect knowledge, we ought to worship, follow, and trust. And I will deal with the other two later. But let me deal with one of them now. Jesus Christ, knowing everything about you, what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen, and sovereignly orchestrating it in some way, by design, could be a scary thing. You could look at it like, man, I can't hide from him. Oh my gosh, oh, I can't hide. Oh no. Or you can end up with a fatalistic mindset. But that's not, that is not how the Bible speaks on the sovereignty of God. Christ's sovereignty ought to lead you to trust him more deeply. It's not to scare you. In actuality, it's the opposite. It's to free you to run to him in surrender and trust. So this morning, do you trust him? Do you have an assured reliance on his character, his ability, and his strength? Do you have a strong confidence in what he says about himself and what he says about you? When the Bible says things like, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, do you believe that or is that just a mantra? that you are reciting. If Matthew 21 does anything for you this morning, let it increase your trust in Christ. Because he is sovereign and knows all means he's trustworthy. We have no reason not to trust. We have no reason to doubt him. It doesn't mean that doubts won't come. It just means that when doubts do come, we need to remind ourselves of the multiple ways that he has shown his trustworthiness. He is the trustworthy sovereign one. Matthew also says that all these things took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Verse 4. So not only were these words written so that we can trust in him, we can also trust and have confidence in what he says about himself. Love, love, love. I love J.C. Ryle. He's like one of my go-to old guys. He's the, like, I have a few of them. He's first bishop of Liverpool. If you've never read his biography, I encourage you to do that, man. This is what he says. It says, from the fulfillment of God's word in time past, we are surely intended to gather something as to the manner of its fulfillment in the time to come. We have a right to expect that prophecies respecting the second advent of Christ will be literally fulfilled as those respecting his first advent. That he came to this earth literally in person the first time. He will come to this earth literally in person the second time. He came in humiliation once, literally to suffer. He will come again in glory, literally to reign. Every prediction 
respecting things accompanying his first advent was literally accomplished. And it will be the same when he returns. It's amazing that he fulfilled prophecies before he will fulfill prophecies again. Now, the question then is, do we live in such a way that we believe that? Sure, we can believe that he was doing it in the past. But are we living in such a way that we believe he's going to do it in the future? J.C. Ryle is saying that, hey, he was literally doing it. So he's literally going to come and do it again. How different would our lives look? How different would our lives at our workplaces look if we believed that Christ was returning? We shouldn't get bogged down with pre, post, I. You're a theologian, you know what I mean. Pre, male, post, I, whatever, you know, all that jazz. All we should know is he's coming back. And our lives should reflect that. Our relationships should reflect that. So the first thing is really the triumphant entry is teaching us everything from prophecies to your life. It's working by sovereign design. Second thing, it teaches us about the character of Christ. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. It says, these things took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fall of a donkey. See, I'm a movie person. I love films. Who's a film person here? Love it. When I was a kid, one of my favorite films was The Mask with Jim Carrey. You guys know Stanley Ipkiss. Love, love, a, love a good Stanley Ipkiss. For those who are like, what are you talking about? The Mask, let me give you a quick spoiler alert. The Mask is a story about Stanley, Jim Carrey playing a character called Stanley Ipkiss. He's a banker. He's got nothing going for him. I mean, nothing. He lives in an apartment. It's not, it's not in La Jolla, that's for sure. It's definitely, it's definitely not where we're staying. Can't walk down to the beach, none of that stuff. He has a dog. He's a lonely guy, you know what I'm saying? But he no status, no power, nothing. One day, by sovereign design, it seems, he sees a mosque. So the mosque is shiny. He puts it on, and you know the story if you've seen it. He gets power. He gets status. And what's the first thing he does? He flaunts it. It's the first thing he does. He flaunts it. There's even a scene in the mosque, I recommend you go watch it, where before mosque, I'm going to call it PM, pre-mosque, <laughs> he is in his car. It is a beat-up, dilapidated vehicle that can barely pass the vehicle inspection. Like, bam, bam, he can't get the girl, nothing. There's no, there's no way that's happening for him. As soon as he gets this mask, he pulls up in what looks like a 15-seater. One man in a 15-seater back to the club, flaunting his money. If we were honest with ourselves, if we, we, if we got nothing, and all of a sudden we were able to get status, what's the first thing we'll do? We'll flaunt it. Some more than others. Now everyone's going to go get a 15-seater. You know, they were trying to offer me a Porsche 
to come on a tour. I said, I don't know. I, I don't know how they're going to look at me riding a Porsche. Into, I don't know. I don't want to be that guy. But I didn't get a dilapidated. I got a nice, you know, little, nice little rental. We would stunt and show off our new found status. Not so with Christ. Not so with Jesus. In, in verse 5, he is called king, meaning he is ruler, meaning he is Lord, he is all-powerful. He is the head of all things. He is not a monarch like we have in, in England who is merely an ambassador to other nations. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Yet, the quote in Zechariah says, look at him coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. His kingly character and means of transportation are the antithesis of what kings are supposed to be or ride in. Kings ride horses. Today, private jets, fancy cars. Kings display their wealth and their power. They are rarely described as gentle or shown as humble. But this king is unlike any other. He comes to his city humbly, knowing what awaits him is hostility and hatred. Still, he comes meek. That word meek and gentleness is so interesting because in our culture, gentleness and meekness are sometimes synonymous with weakness. People are putting gentle and meek on their LinkedIn. You know, they, don't put, they don't put that on their, on their Instagram bio. That's not what they're doing. They're not doing that. Shailene, he's a famous rapper. I love this line. He says, if you think being meek is weak, try being meek for a week. If you think being meek is weak, try being meek for one week. Assuming you can, try for one week to empty yourself, assuming the form of a servant, and then take on the likeness of humanity. Then, when you come as a man, humble yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. Try doing that. When you know that you're God in the flesh, who made all things, brothers and sisters, those who are here, his humility is not weakness but his strength. So let me ask you, do you resemble this king this morning? Are you marked by gentleness, humility, and servitude? When people talk about you privately, do they say you're one who brings peace and love? It's one of the markers that you belong to the king and his kingdom, that Christians are to resemble Christ in this. So Paul is getting that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, adopt the same mindset, the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So those who are in Christ are to look like Jesus and to follow his pattern of humility, gentleness, and love. Our distinction as Christians, therefore, should not primarily be in what we listen to and don't listen to. Our distinction as Christians should not primarily be in who we vote for and don't vote for. Shouldn't be in which concert we're going to go to, which concert we're not going to go to. Our distinction primarily is this. 
Do we look like Jesus? That's our distinction. In our marriage, are we adopting these traits of gentleness, humility? With our kids, are we putting on gentleness and love? That's hard for me, I won't lie. At work, at school, wherever we find ourselves, do we have the same attitude that the king does? That although we can flex, we choose not to. Even though everything that, was, that we have is given to us by God anyway, we don't have a false humility. No, we are reflecting what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not weakness, but a strength. The kingdom of God is the first shall be last. The last shall be first. We wash feet and we serve. We lay our lives down for one another. When the king comes in to Jerusalem, he's showing us this. It's not weakness, but a strength. You know what else is true strength? The fact that he comes peacefully. Which leads me to my third point. That the purpose of Christ coming into Jerusalem was to bring peace between us and God. The rider of the donkey shows this. You see, again, like a film person, I'm always looking at plot patterns. Like, who's the main character? What's, what's happening? Different characters going on here. And I'm seeing this donkey is playing an important role in this narrative. See, we see donkey and think detestable animal. But in the Middle East, the donkey could be a noble animal. Often, a king came riding upon a donkey, but when he did, it was the sign that he came for peace. The horse was the mount of war. The donkey was the mount of peace. So when Christ comes in, he doesn't come like the crowds want him to. They are crying out, son of David, in verse 9, because their expectation is that the messianic king would come to overthrow the Romans. They missed all the symbolism. They missed all that was in front of them. They wanted an insurrection, but Christ is saying, hey, my kingdom is in reverse. As one commentator says, listen, the pilgrims, as the people, they might shout their acclaims and think of a king who would fight against the Romans and throw them out of the country. But Jesus viewed himself as the king of peace. He had accepted the salutation, son of David, and there was no doubt that he agreed that he was the messianic king. But he did not interpret messianic kingship as most of his contemporaries did. He did not view it in terms of armies and battles and conquests. He saw it in terms of peace, love, and compassion. His purpose was to bring peace. Peace for the hopeless. Peace for the helpless. Peace for the hurt and peace for the broken and peace for the restless. A peace that surpasses all understanding so that we can be in right relationship with God. Because our relationship pre-Christ was broken. The Bible says that we were at odds with God. We were at enmity with him. We had beef with him. It's the rapper, you know, we had it. We had beef with God. And Paul says that since we have been justified by faith, 
Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have entered on a horse. He could have entered on a camel. We went to the zoo yesterday. We saw a bunch of those. He could have entered on a camel. He could have walked in. He could have walked in. But he chose to come on a donkey. Our Savior humbled himself on a donkey to bring us peace. Charles Spurgeon, another one of my old guys, says this about the priest peace of Christ. He says, this divine shoe of peace. He'd be talking weird when, back in the day. <laughs> this divine shoe of peace makes us walk without weariness and run without fainting. I can do all things when my soul is at peace with God. And there is no suffering that shall move my soul to pain. No terrors that shall blanch my cheek. There are no wounds that shall compel me to humiliate and fear when my spirit is at peace with God. Brothers and sisters, do you have this peace? The king came to give us a peace like no other. Not like the world gives or the peace that we would give ourselves. It's counterfeit peace. He came us to give, he came to give us genuine peace. See, though he comes to give us genuine peace, the crowd misses it. So there is a warning here for all of us that we must take care to not become like the crowd who were in the mix, in the thick of everything, but completely not seeing it. They only saw a prophet, verse 11, or a political figure, but they didn't realize that it was more than meets the eye. They even recited orthodox theology, quoting Psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. They quote in Psalm 118. And still, when he doesn't do what they want him to do, they are later yelling, crucify, crucify, kill Jesus, free Barabbas. How do you go from one end of the spectrum to the other? I tell you. You have two choices when you meet the real Jesus. You either bend the knee or you kill him. There's no, there's no middle ground. You either follow him or you leave. You either submit and surrender or respond in rejection. This is famous. He said it's either Christ is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Lord of all our thoughts and ideas, all things must be brought into submission of the king. The crowd missed the identity of Jesus because they had a preconceived notion of who Jesus was meant to be. They wanted a political Messiah, but he came to rule over the hearts and minds of men and women. May we in this room not miss the real Jesus. May we not miss Jesus that's found in the scriptures because we have our own agenda for him. How do you go from following Jesus 
to not following him. Same way you can go from screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him. There is a warning in here, brothers and sisters. So how should we respond? If Christ is king, like I said earlier, then he is the one we ought to lay down everything for, worship, and follow. Look at verse 7 and look at verse 8. It says, they brought its donkey and its fowl, and they laid their clothes down on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the floor, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowd shouted, Hosanna. What's happening here? Of course, physically, we can see they're taking off their clothes, they're cutting branches, all that good stuff. Oh, clothes, branches on the floor. Hosanna, woo, here's my Balenciaga t-shirt. Take it on the floor. All of that stuff. But really what's happening here is also deeper. They are doing to Jesus what their ancestors did to Jehu in 2 Kings verse 9. 2 Kings 9.13 says, Every man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. And they blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. In 2 Kings those who were laying their garments under Jehu were doing so as a sign of recognition, loyalty, and promise of support. They were saying, as we put our garments under your feet, so we place everything under your authority and acknowledge ourselves as your servant. Those in Matthew 21, knowingly or unknowingly, were doing the same thing. The clothing on the road, the branches being cut from the trees and spread out were a representation of them laying everything down at the feet of Jesus and acknowledging themselves as servants to the true king. Let's not miss that this morning. The branches, the kids, Hosanna. That is how we ought to respond. Not just today, but forever. We must take off everything and lay it down at his feet. Every social agenda, every sexual agenda, every sin issue, every self-righteous thought, everything. Our money, our homes, our status, our security, every single thing. There is nothing that we get to hold on to and say, this is for me. Not with this king. Not in this kingdom. That we lay down everything and place it under his authority, meaning he has a right to it. He gets to tell us what to say, how to think, and how to act regarding whatever it is. Why? Because he's king. And we see ourselves as servants in his kingdom. We pledge our allegiance loyalty and promise and support to him not anything or anyone else let you guys go home and marinate on that our prayer is that we don't view Jesus like an evil parent wanting to take all our candy away I have two kids children sometimes assume that parents tell them to stop doing something or let go of something because they want them to not have fun. 
Parents can testify to that. The reality, however, is that we as parents tell our children to stop doing something that could harm them. Why? Because we love them. Sometimes we hear this kind of talk, letting go, laying down, Christ having all authority over our lives and conclude that Jesus is trying to stop us from having a good time. It's our mindset sometimes. Bro, I just want to live my life. Why not this Jesus and not this Jesus thing? Lay down every... Nah, it's too much, bro. Hmm. But pay attention to how the crowd and the disciples responded. They didn't reluctantly remove their clothing or, or cut the branches. There was a joy that filled their hearts because of whom it was that was coming into Jerusalem. You see, everything changes when we know that the king who is calling us to do something is calling us to do it, yes, for his glory, but also for our good. It is for your good that he's telling you to lay down everything. It is for your good that he's telling you, I want allegiance, all allegiance. It is for your good that he's saying, I want all support, all loyalty. It's for his glory, but also for his good. In 2 Kings, in Matthew 21, as I conclude, each person took off their garments. It took off their clothing. Maybe, just maybe, after everything was over, before they went back to their homes to kiss their wives and to hug their babies, they went back to the scene of the crime. Not even a crime. They went back to the scene of the spectacle. They saw their Balenciaga t-shirt. They got to be Balenciaga. I don't know why. I don't own a Balenciaga t-shirt right away. I don't want you guys to think that. They saw that Balenciaga t-shirt, and you know what they did? They picked it back up. Imagine that. The gospel is that our clothes are taken off, and instead of us going back to pick them up, the king himself clothes us. He gives us new clothing. You may be wondering, what does that mean? One of my favorite illustrations for this is in the Old Testament. In Zechariah verse 3, in chapter 3, 3 to 4, it says, Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him. Take off his filthy clothing. And he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with what? With festive robes. Each of us. We are all wearing filthy clothing. Our sin before God is filthy. Our attempt to try and stand before God with our own righteousness is inadequate. It takes God's gracious saving activity to remove what we wear and replace it with rich robes. When our old clothing is taken off, like in Matthew 21, what the king does is puts on his righteousness. He clothes us. Isaiah says that we are clothed with the garments of salvation. We are clothed and covered with the robe of righteousness. 
this new garment that he gives us are not only clean, but they're rich. They are festive. They are fine garments suitable to wear in God's presence. Matthew 21, the clothing being taken off is also to show that, hey, you don't got to go back to put on the old garment again. That the king himself, who is riding into Jerusalem, will clothe you. If you are not a Christian, do you know this king who rides not only for his personal gain, not really for personal gain at all, but for the gain of others, who takes off our filthy garments, our iniquity, and clothes us with righteous robes. Do you know who comes to give us peace? Do you know who comes in humility and gentleness and love? That we can't earn our way into his kingdom. Joshua didn't take off his garments. The Lord did. The Lord did. The Lord put on festive robes, righteousness, and salvation. He clothes us. He does the work. And we just need to come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are king, that you are sovereign, that you are working everything out by design. Thank you, Lord God, that we... Don't have to earn our way to you. You have made a way for us to know you. And that you remove our iniquity and put on new clothing for us. May we live in that reality. May King's Cross Church live in that reality. May the members here know you. May those who don't know you come to know you. And may we meditate on your word today and do what it says. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.